0: when you're a pro your reputation is built and proven over time that's why the home depot carries loctite pl premium max construction adhesive the strongest on the market it stays 100 solid after curing it won't develop air pockets and like your reputation it holds up over time right now get 12 or more for the bulk price of only 853 each loctite pl premium max at the home depot how doers get more done minimum purchase required us only
2: Welcome to the Raptors Weekly Extra Podcast, a special edition, uh, as training camp is around the corner, and we welcome an old friend, uh, a a man who lactates basketball knowledge, Tim Chisholm. What's up, Tim?
1: (laughs) I don't think I've ever been described like that before, but I'll take it. It sounds like a compliment, so I'll take it. Yeah,
2: yeah. So how's how's your summer been so far? Are are you following the uh, post-summer league leagues?
1: You know what? I tried a couple of years ago to get really into that, like the Drew League stuff and, and some of the uh, some of the Euro stuff. I just I just can't get into it. It's just it actually might be too much basketball for me, which I never thought I would say, but it might be too much.
2: Is it the quality of basketball or the laissez faire attitude towards the game during those tournaments? Uh, like, what is it about that? Because that, 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 I'm assuming you get into Summer League a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, I'll do Summer League. And I think what the thing that gets me is that I have this weird sense where like, if I'm going to get into something, I like to know everything about it. And when you get to the point when you're watching games where you might know one of the 10 players on the court at a given time, it's like, it sets off this weird thing in my mind where my first impulse is, okay, now go and research these other nine guys, because you've got to get what's going on here. And I think when that's happening for random summer basketball, you know that maybe you have a problem and you just sort of step back from the computer.
2: And I'm guessing if you do undertake that exercise, you'll quickly end up uh, in China, and uh, somehow <laughs> Stefan Marbury will get involved.
1: At the end of the road is always Stefan Marbury, and that's probably a road you don't want to jump down, so that's where I cut it off.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah same here man. I mean summer league'm I'm, I'm game for, I'll watch it, I'll follow it uh, I'll even pay the 999 or whatever uh, the online subscription is but after that I just can't be bothered with it because um, and for different reasons um other than you because uh, you're more like I want to know everything about this for me, it's like uh I just don't think it's a good predictor of anything. True. Uh, I remember I remember watching the Drew League with uh, Demar Derozan dominating it like years back, and then uh, coming back in the in training camp, and none of that was actually there. And and there's a countless examples of that. I mean, Joey Graham used to dominate the uh, post summer league league, mm-hmm. so uh that kind of soured me on them.
1: Do you enjoy summer league though? Like when you watch it, do you actually like enjoy the basketball, or do you find it's purely like? Let's see what the guys, especially like with the Raptors guys, are going to be working on. Or like, how where does your enjoyment level rank for for Summer League?
2: So for me, it's the guys who haven't gotten playing time during the season. It's fun to see those guys unleashed on the court and, and get a chance to show things that they weren't able to do during the regular season. It, it, has, it has nothing to do with the outcome of the games at all, even though the new playoff structure does, uh, does add a little bit more uh, to the watchability of Summer League. But yeah, it, it's individual player analysis. It's not like I, I don't have a Summer League Raptors jersey.
1: that would terrify me if someone had a summer league's raptors jersey but we'll leave each to their own
2: so uh so summer league is you know we we talk about players graduating out of summer league and and not playing anymore uh you know nick nurse has graduated out of summer league too at this point Mm -hmm. and uh head coach of the raptors so when Dwayne casey was um was let go was your were you, a I can't remember, were you a Dwayne Casey supporter? I, I don't think so. I think you were always a bit cynical of, of his abilities.
1: Yeah, my thing with Casey was always the fact that this was a guy, and I can't, I don't even, okay, I'll put it this way. This is the way that I, I, I kind of was able to summarize it once he was let go. Casey was a guy that when they brought him in, did exactly what they wanted him to do when they brought him in, which was to create a culture. And it's hard to sort of think back to the time before him how bad or how or really non-existent the Raptors culture was to understand how big of a deal it was that he was actually able to create some sort of identity for the Raptors but as time went on and 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 the identity kind of shifted from Casey to DeRozan and Lowry and that need wasn't there anymore and he had to start feeling a far more tactical kind of coach's role you really started to see the limits of his um of his potential with the team. And I think that became especially clear. And I'm by no means uh, the only person who, who thinks this, but this was a guy that became obsessed with the regular season and not preparing for the playoffs. And at the end of the day, I think if anything was what knocked him out of Ujiri's favor was that this was a guy that didn't understand that once you reach a certain level in the NBA, all the regular season is there for is to get you to a place where you are ready to play in the playoffs.
2: Yeah, and I think there's this incident after Game Three against Cleveland where O'Jiri apparently went into the locker room and you know had made a made a big deal about Casey not uh, basically allowing LeBron to go up and throw that runner in, mm. and uh, I think I think that that incident was a microcosm of the larger issue where uh, apparently even according to O'Jiri, Casey failed to see what it takes tactically or strategically. Uh, to manage a game, and those eight seconds, I remember, were really part of a larger issue with Casey.
1: Well, and that's the thing, too, when you get to that level. Like, when you're trying to grab a team that's been winning 25, 30, 35 games a year and getting them into that place where they're now maybe winning 42, 45, your margin for error is much wider. When you get to the point when you're in the playoffs, and again, you're talking about careers being made in eight-second bursts that's your margin for error. You don't get to come back and say, well, it was eight seconds of a game. What do you want me to do? If you're the GM whose entire job is to make sure that that team wins those eight seconds and however the downstream effects of that have to occur, that's what you're being measured by as a head coach. So is it fair or even realistic to to measure a coach by that standard? No, but at the same time, that's the standard you're measured by. I mean, in 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 an occupation where... The outcome is almost 100% the evaluator of your performance. Those eight seconds, that one quarter, that handful of plays is what's going to determine your job. And I think, I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past too. I mean, there were seasons that ended where we both thought Casey was going to get fired. So it wasn't as though this was a guy that had been skating along unscathed. He was a guy that managed to skate through a couple of really tense postseasons and you get to a point where... Even though this probably wasn't his most egregious postseason, you have to sort of look at the cumulative effect of all of these years and say it's just time to move on.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and move on they did to uh, Nick Nurse. Uh, was so personally speaking, I was a little underwhelmed by the appointment. But then again, when you looked at the market out there, who, who you could have possibly gone with, maybe the the, the, the token Spurs assistant. Um, Nick Nurse at the end of the day was not a was not a bad option. I think the other option at the time were Messina, perhaps was there, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, in the sake of continuity, maybe a little bit, uh, Nick Nurse seemed like a fine appointment, and it also kind of spoke to what Ujiri thought of the coaching unit as a whole. Maybe he thought that Nick Nurse's ideas were kind of being suffocated, if you will, by. Casey, or, or weren't being brought to the fore as much as they should, and now he's been given a chance. Your initial reaction to um, Nick Nurse's appointment uh, after after muddying around for a couple of weeks with some assistant coaches?
1: It's funny. By the time they actually settled on Nurse, I was surprised, and then within about a week was really upset at myself for being surprised. Because if you look at the way that Ujiri's run this team for the last handful of years, it's been all about internal development. It's been all about setting guys up to start at a uh, like disciple phase, or however you want to describe what it's like when guys come in, they start in the G League, they work their way up to the rotation, they end up getting more minutes. I mean, this has been the mo of the Raptors for the last handful of years, and it's why they have a somewhat enviable stable of young role players. is because they look to really invest in the guys that they have, rather than looking strictly at external imports to improve the team year over year. So, when you look at it through that lens, the nurse promotion is almost inevitable. But at the time I was with you, I kind of heard it come down the pike and it'd been about a month of just waiting for something to happen. You know, Stackhouse kind of falls out of it and Budenholzer goes to Milwaukee. And by the time you're you're left with the results or with the options that were on the table, like nobody was really lighting your world on fire. And I think it's actually kind of cool to me in a way, because I've been covering the NBA long enough to also remember a time when all any fan wanted to do was chase the biggest name coach. You know, I mean, if there was ever a coaching vacancy in Toronto, all anybody wanted was Jeff Van Gundy, because that's the guy they saw, call the games, that's the guy they knew, coach the Knicks, coach the Rockets. And we've actually sort of matured a little bit as, as basketball fandom in general, but also basketball fandom in Toronto, where you saw to understand that what you see of a coach uh, game to game or the coach's previous stops are not always... The total representation of what a coach can actually do. I, I, so much of what a coach does, and this is, I think, something that might have actually hindered Casey's uh, reputation in Toronto, is that so much of what a coach does happens behind closed doors and managing relationships and working out the way in which the construction of a roster is going to happen over the course of years or managing your rotations, uh, not in the game itself, but setting yourself up for them in training camp, setting yourself up for them over the course of the summer when you're game planning, how your team's going to play. So I actually almost have next to no opinion of nurse, which is a, a really useless thing to say as any kind of an analyst, but it's because I don't think we have any real sense of what Nick nurse's Toronto Raptors are going to look like. It's you sort of throw your hands up and say, well, like he's as good an option as any. I don't, I don't look at it as, as such a weird choice that it uh, it should never have been done. But at the same time, I don't get excited about it. I, but I have a question for you, though. When Would you have rather had Mike Budenholzer had he still been an option and available to them over Nick Nurse?
2: Yes. I, I think that's a, that's a clear yes to me, only because uh, I enjoyed that Hawks offense that mm. those couple of years, which were a lot of off-the-ball movement, which I think the, is what the Raptors lacked. Mm. Uh, and I think Budenholzer would perhaps bring that in spades. And, and it, w- it would have been great to see at the time, DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry uh, be part of an offense where off-the-ball movement is so coveted, and he would actually kind of force them to pass the ball and look for each other a lot more, whereas Dwayne Casey's offense was, was a lot different. So uh, at the time, with, with Kyle and, and DeMar there, I, I think I was a little excited about that. And um, also, there's also a bit of a brand with Budenholzer uh, and uh, more excitement, certainly, than Nick Nurse. Uh, as you said, Nick Nurse is, is not a known quantity because... You don't know how much of what you saw is Nick Nurse or Dwayne Casey overriding Nick Nurse or, or what have you. So Budenholzer was, uh, although he struggled the last season in uh, in Atlanta, I think I still would have preferred him. But you know, I'm like you, where I do not have you know any sort of issue with the Nick Nurse signing. I think uh, at the very least you can you can see what the offensive potential of the Raptors could have been under Dwayne Casey if perhaps Nick Nurse had his way with the offense, which which many of us think uh, uh, he didn't.
1: Yeah,
2: I agree. Okay, so we touched on it. Uh, Let's let's talk about the trade. Mm -hmm. Um, When it happened, I think I was for about 15 seconds thinking, oh man, I honestly believe that DeMar DeRozan was the most loyal Toronto Raptors ever and genuinely, genuinely loved the city more than any other player we have ever had. And... I know that he's going to be heartbroken because of the trade, much more so than any other player that we've ever had in our twenty twenty one year history. And that feeling lasted about fifteen seconds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: when I was like, you know what, we have a legit, legit top five player on the Raptors. Yes, there are questions about his resigning. There's a bit of an injury concern, but as somebody on TNT a long time ago said, the the team that wins the trade is the one who got the best player.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's, it was. I had a very similar reaction. And it's funny because of the way that the news leaked about the trade, because it was in that weird sort of staggered state where unlike what you usually get is more or less your watch bomb saying, here's the kind of entire package. All we knew at the, uh, I guess, like sort of middle of the night, uh, the night of the trade sort of thing was, is that Kawhi is coming to Toronto and DeMar DeRozan is pissed off. And I think when we were all speculating about what it would cost to bring Kawhi to the Raptors, we all sort of assumed it was going to be this Prince's ransom. And so the idea of, okay, DeRozan is pissed off. So he's obviously going, they probably got at least OG and maybe also Siakam and probably also a pick. I mean, that was sort of what we all assumed was table stakes for this trade. And so, the whole thing kind of felt like wow they're really going to have to mortgage things to make this work and because we didn't know what the other pieces were it was very easy to get sucked into the DeRozan narrative because in all honesty it, it, it was a really really potent part of his appeal the fact that this was a guy that really sunk his teeth into Toronto in a way that no other guy had like you said but as the morning sort of takes on and you start to realize like oh it's, it's just Purdle. oh and a pick Oh, the pick is protected for Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green. Like, it was became one of those sorts of trades where it was almost impossible to speak against it. And you sort of feel bad that maybe you're kind of treating DeMar DeRozan, the human, as DeMar DeRozan, the asset. But you can compartmentalize those two things. like you, Like you said, you can be sort of disappointed and upset with the fact that the only way that this trade makes sense on a number of levels, as if DeRozan goes out in it, not just to match the salaries, not just to satisfy San Antonio's wants, but DeRozan was an incredibly hard player to build a team around or to even have as a major component of this team. And again, it's another one of those topics that we talked about several times in the past because his limitations, especially when it comes to outside shooting and defense, were really, really hard to sugarcoat in in today's NBA. And... No matter what kind of players you were going to bring in, it was going to be very hard to put the right kind of player around him that's going to both maximize DeRozan, but also completely mitigate his weaknesses. So, yes, it sort of sucks emotionally that he had to go out. But like you said, you're getting back an MVP caliber player. So how do you not do that 10 times out of 10?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I also appreciate uh, Kawhi driving his own value down with his uh, pre-trade <laughs> talk. I, I think that definitely had something to do with uh, with the package that went the other way. Uh, uh, with with DeRozan, we sometimes talk about JV being an uh, anachronism, and I think, uh, DeRozan, you could make a case is that as well, but to a much, much lesser degree. What, what, do you, what do you think of that point?
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a really good way to put it. I think that he did... Just about everything he could do to um, to change that narrative, to change that almost truism about his game, that he was a guy that existed about 10, 15 years too late uh, in the NBA. But at the same time, you sort of see the ways that other teams over the years would game plan for him, especially in the postseason. And you really just saw that no matter how much you wanted to applaud the effort that DeRozan was making, and again, this year the passing was better. He was t- at least attempting more threes, uh, would have spurs where he was hitting them. You 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 want to applaud the effort, but at the end of the day, they didn't actually translate into a fundamentally different player. They didn't actually translate into a guy that Dwayne Casey could meaningfully deploy in a different way that would have made the team uh, more dangerous or more potent. And I think... The other part about the DeRozan one too, which I I failed to mention a second ago, which I think is also very much a part of this um, most recent playoff failure, is I think that DeRozan and Lowry, uh, in addition to Casey, very visibly carry mental scars about the Cleveland Cavaliers. These were three guys that you could see LeBron was in their head. And the way in which he started this third quarter of game two, knowing that all he needs to do is ...break their mental spirit once... ...and he's going to win the series. They did it last year with the the off-the-backboard alley ...to Kyrie Irving, I guess two years ago... ...and then last season, you sort of saw it with that flurry... ...at the start uh, of the second half of Game 2... ...and that was going to be something else... ...that was going to be very hard to carry forward... ...into another year. Not just the skill limitations, whatever they may be... ...but also the mental limitations... and, ...and the baggage that comes from this team... ...being so famous for their playoff failures... Retaining that duo it's just another hurdle that they have to overcome and so I think that kind of purging that again almost almost regardless of the fact that you get Kawhi Leonard back was going to be something they had to do if they really wanted to take a meaningful step forward uh, at least with this configuration before they try tearing it down
2: and, and- one one direction after the uh, after the playoffs and this year or even the last year one narrative was always that the raptors have to uh, to improve their ceiling the raptors have to increase or improve on who their best player is they need a third guy and that third guy maybe needs to be better than the two guys they already have and if you look at it based on that uh, criteria this is a trade that accomplishes that without sacrificing your future flexibility in any way. And, and the point that I make is that if it doesn't work out, if he walks, or if he gets injured, you're getting a rental and you start your eventual rebuild a year early. Big deal. We're used to rebuilds. It, 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 that, that shouldn't scare Raptor fans at all.
1: I mean, I, I agree with that 110%. I think the rebuild was inevitable. You know, given the way that the team was, was built, the way that the contracts line up to expire, uh, mostly altogether, this was a team that was very much designed to have an explicit window. And that means that if you take the whole thing under the consideration that the breakdown and the rebuild was going to happen, then why not do whatever you can to make that window as potent as possible? And so, yeah, if Kawhi walks at the end of this year, then all you've done is accelerate the whole thing by 12 months. And you could even then make the case at that point that if you know you're going to rebuild, start rebuilding. You know, if, if, if you're going to be in a situation where that's, that's that uh, near term a possibility, you're better off starting it now because then that should just mean that the returns that you get for it are a year sooner as well.
2: Yeah. So, so switching gears a little bit, um I don't know how much you want to talk about what Kawhi's impact on the roster will be. I, I think we all agree that he's going to be a, a, a huge defensive upgrade on the position. Uh, offensively, he's going to bring a lot more. But is it? can you a- actually anticipate without seeing any games on where he might fit in or how Nurse might use him? Because I am at a complete loss. I just want to go through a few games and see what Nurse's ideas are about him.
1: Yeah, well, that goes back to the thing we were talking about with Nurse in general, right? I mean, you're trying to put an unknown on top of an unknown. We don't really know what Nurse's style is going to be exactly in general. And then to try to take this massive X factor and throw it into there, I think it makes it all the more complicated. The one thing, though, that I think you can definitely anticipate is there will be a point when the defensive lineups that the Raptors are throwing at other teams will absolutely suffocate other teams, in a way that I don't think a Toronto team has ever been able to do, even in the sort of kind of fake, really good defensive teams that Kevin O'Neill, I guess one team that Kevin O'Neill had uh, over a decade ago. Uh, But that's going to be the thing that I think, what I get curious about is, is that what they want the definition of the team to be? Because I don't know that it is. I mean, Nurse is not necessarily somebody who's ever said that defense is going to be the thing that defines my NBA team, but when you think about the kinds of lineups they can throw out there with guys like uh, Leonard and Siakam and OG and DeLon Wright, sort of and Green anchoring uh, anchoring the defense, it's got the potential to—I mean—to easily be the best defense in the NBA. But it really has a chance to disrupt the way that teams even want to guard Toronto because of how much they're going to get into the rhythm of the other team defensively.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's nice to go into a season knowing that even by default your defense will be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, so let's let's switch a little gears to uh, some other players. Uh, do you anticipate Kyle Lowry to have any sort of lingering negative reaction to the trade, or do you think he's mature enough? Because I know he's good friends with DeRozan and all that. Like, do we do we expect any sort of lingering, you know? Feelings uh, that might impact the team?
1: It's such a tough one to gauge. I mean, you know that there's probably going to be some trust lost between Lowry and the front office. But I shouldn't say you know. There's a Let's say there's a good chance that that's the case. But Lowry's also walking into a situation where he's going to be playing alongside the best player he's ever played with in his career. And he's doing it at a time in his career where I think the end is closer to the beginning. You know, he's starting to see with every year that ticks by is one year further from after the one year further it's 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 another every year he doesn't win a championship is another year he'll never win a championship you know it's it's that kind of that kind of approaching the end of his career in such a way that when you can bring in a guy like Kawhi Leonard that can have the kind of impact that he has I don't know how there isn't a part of you no matter who your friend is that you aren't excited about that possibility now if Kawhi also brings with him the same level of emotional baggage that he was bringing to San Antonio in the last year and the same unpredictability in that sense, or if he does something to upset the condition of the locker room um, from a relationship standpoint, then maybe these sorts of things bubble up for Lowry again. But I would have to imagine that coming in to this season, he's got to be at the very least optimistically curious about what's going to happen uh, teaming up with Kawhi Leonard this year.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's switch to Ibaka. He had a pretty poor postseason, and um, coming into this training camp, there's all, already some uh, some groundwork being laid uh, for uh, him to come off the bench by Nick Nurse. Uh, is that and Vivek uh, Jacobs on the site wrote a pretty uh, pretty nice article uh, which, which outlined kind of uh, Nick Nurse's options going forward mm-hmm. and, and, w- and one of the things he pointed out was uh, Ibaka coming off the bench because of um, not necessarily Ibaka's regression in the postseason but also the other players on the team kind of filling in some of the defensive holes that Ibaka was brought in to fill so now perhaps we're not as reliant on him as we were when we originally made the trade
1: well it's funny that you even sort of mentioned the idea. Like I have so written off the idea of him starting. Uh, it's 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 like a distant memory in my mind that I'd even kind of forgotten that that might still be an option. I guess I don't think it is. But what I actually get more curious about is if Ibaka. So let me. We've got there are sort of let's say four bigs right now that you're mostly dealing with. You've got uh, Valanchunas, You've got Ibaka. I think that you're gonna. I you got Siakim, I think you're gonna see a lot of OG at power forward and you've got Greg Monroe. Now of those five, where does Ibaka even rank? Because there's a chance he's definitely at best, I think fourth, and he might be fifth depending on what you actually want from that position. Because if you're a team that wants to stay somewhat switchy on the perimeter and uh, be a guy that, and, and, and and use up your power forward minutes with uh, OG and Siakam and potentially Kawhi, then you're really only looking at center minutes that's available for Valentunas, who I think is going to continue to start. Uh, uh, I think you're going to see some minutes with Siakam at center. And then uh, Ibaka. And I mean, I don't know if Greg Monroe will ever actually play it, but I think there will be certain games where his particular skill set will be useful. And so the thing about Ibaka that I start to wonder is what would you think at this point the team even values in his skill set that would get him minutes going into the season
2: yeah that's that's exactly how, how I look at it, it it's and, and more on the offensive side i think what do you lose on the offensive side by not playing him he is so he, he's generally been inconsistent since he came to toronto uh, yeah. on the offensive side defensively you could argue that he's been somewhat consistent uh, but offensively he gives you you know 16-1 game and eight the other and you know in the next game, who knows? Uh, given that you've you've actually got a better offensive player on the team with uh, with Kawhi now, I think that is that is less of a concern. And as as Vivek pointed out, you have better defensive players on the team, or at least players who have evolved over the last couple of years to form a better defensive uh, unit. So I, I see almost zero incentive to give him starting minutes. But at the same time, I think this starting bench discussion is generally overblown. It, 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 it quite doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's all about minutes played. I think in terms of minutes played, he will be in the twenty twenty three range, uh, which will be a little down for him uh, compared to last year. I think last year he was at twenty six, so I don't think he'll see a huge drop off in minutes. But but he'll definitely see. Um, I, I think I think he'll be second option at uh, at power forward.
1: That's interesting. See, I would have actually assumed even lower than that. I and it might just be over pessimism. And I think I'm a little bit too intrigued about Monroe's passing. It's what key like, has so many other limitations in his game, uh, Greg Monroe, that I think it will actually be hard to uh, give him serious minutes this season. But at the same time, it goes back to that conversation of I think that I can gauge at this point between rebounding and passing what Greg Monroe. Will bring to the Raptors this season if they want uh, those specific skills. And with Abaka, I just don't see what those things are anymore because he's not such a fearsome shot blocker like he used to be. He doesn't cover the pick and roll quite as well as he used to. He's just a guy that is still good at a number of things, but there isn't that skill that this is what I throw him out for. And look maybe that's not even the way that Nick Nurse thinks and he, much, he might have a much more nuanced I hope he has a much more nuanced way to see this than I do but, um, but I don't know I, I think that it's a for me it's still I, I, I could easily see it swinging one way or the other if you wind up being right I can totally see it and if Ibaka falls out of the rotation entirely I can also see it I think that he might have the greatest variance of any player on the roster when it comes to what his role is going to be this year
2: it also depends if he accepts the role i think if he comes off the bench focused on like he's going to be the energy guy off the bench who will give it give it all of it defensively uh, i think he can make an impact if he's if he's kind of coming off the bench to fight for a starting job then i can see this whole thing going hmm. south but if he actually accepts the role I think you'll see a positive outcome. But if it's framed as, "Hey man, I got to win my starting job back," then you're in this like Patrick Patterson territory of benching, coming off the bench and starting where things get confusing and eventually your performance goes on a downturn.
1: Who do you think start to power forward?
2: I think OG's a good pick. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think he's a decent because uh, Siakam, I think, is still your energy guy off the bench, and yeah. he has uh, shown over the last uh, year, especially, that he can have a consistent impact on that. He's a known quantity off the bench. Why would you want to disrupt that? Uh, I, I think that's an that that energy is an asset off the bench, which you don't want to lose.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um,
2: so you mentioned passing, uh, and and you talked about Greg Mundrew a little bit, uh, post passing or post play. High post play in general, uh, and working off the pinch post has been lacking in the Raptors for the last few years. Uh, mostly because of the way uh, our guards are set up, how Casey preferred to operate. So far this summer, there's been some talk that the Raptors might look at, you know, using JV's passing ability, which is laughable except I don't think he's averaged <laughs> more than like a assist and a half uh, ever. Uh, but Greg Monroe is a good passer. By the way, I I do believe we let go of our best passing center in the last few years, which was Bebe. But let's 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 let go of that. But now you got now you got a Nick Nurse thinking that he might be using the center as a as a as a passing strength in the game. What are you? Is that realistic?
1: Well, the thing about Valanchunas, I mean, this is what I always get so uh, confused about with the Valanchunas thing, and this goes to what the difference between what we get to see on the court versus what they are in theory working on in practice. Like, I've heard multiple times that Valanchunas in the last year to 18 months has really improved his ability to read the court and make passes. But all you can really do is take people's word for it because you don't really see it translate in the game in any consistent way. Now, maybe it's because, like you said, Casey isn't deploying him that way. and Maybe it's because when we think of that kind of a player... We're thinking of a passer of the caliber of like Mark Gasol, who's one of the greatest passing big men ever. So it might be just a matter of trying to align expectation with skill set. But I don't know that the Raptors have, I mean, aside from Monroe, we have nobody on the team that has demonstrated that skill. So at this point, it's all sort of speculative that the coaching staff uh, is reading the skill set of the players right. And then if you want to implement that as an actual part of your offense, presumably you would need more than one or two people to be able to do it. You'd, you'd want at least, I would say, just about everybody who's going to play meaningful minutes to be able to execute those plays, at least passively, uh, in order to not have to wildly change your offensive style every time you sub someone in and out. So I don't know if it's realistic. I could see it being one of those things like it was with Sam Mitchell a number of years ago when he was adamant about getting up 100 shots a game and it becomes this focus of training camp, even maybe the focus for the first two weeks of the season, and you immediately start to realize the folly of that kind of thing, and you sort of fall back into more familiar patterns. Now, that's where we really get to test a guy like Nurse, too, because is this a guy that sort of forces his team through rough patches of learning new systems till they get to the other side where it maybe it becomes more natural? Or being a rookie coach, being a rookie coach on a team with expectations, is this going to be a guy that sort of leans off the gas pedal at the first sign of trouble when he tries to implement a new system.
2: Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Uh, uh, I, I feel a passing big man is almost required. Um, and one thing I, I want to do call out is that Kawhi's played uh, with the Spurs uh, his entire career. And they've always had very good big men who pass the ball. And a lot of their offense... You know, gets the ball into the post with LaMarcus Aldridge, and then you sometimes work from there, and you cut, and there's off-the-ball movement. So he's used to that sort of an offense. How much do you think the Raptors need to cater to that, uh, to the way Kawhi's been playing in San Antonio? Um, And maybe this is a product of of trying to replicate, maybe not replicate, but trying to at least get a similar offense going where Kawhi can get get an easier transition.
1: I think you definitely want to try to maximize your best players' skill set, for sure. I I think that um, there's that kind of somewhat famous story at this point of when Kawhi came up to meet with Nick Nurse and he got so excited about their meeting. He's jumping up there and whiteboarding with him on all of the offensive stuff that they want to do. So I would imagine that there'll be a lot of collaboration that happens there between what the team wants to do but also how Leonard feels most comfortable fitting in, the kinds of things that he's wanted to run but hasn't been able to, I think it's foolhardy to try to say to this guy who is again probably the best, potentially the best player to ever play with the team, and the only reason he wouldn't be because of would be because of injuries. But you would want to cater as much to that guy as possible because you want to maximize his skill sets and kind of make everything fall in line around that. So, if he's a guy that feels that he's at his best with passing big men and playing that inside-out style or that like you know lots of cuts, lots of um, backdoor action, all that kind of stuff, then. I think that you do uh, cater to that first and then you almost design your system second uh, if that's going to make your best player most effective.
2: Yeah. A uh, hey, quick segue to uh, NBA 2K ratings came out uh, a, l- a little while ago and uh Kawhi's obviously the Raptors top rated player. Then it's Kyle Lowry. Can you guess third and fourth?
1: I, if I had to guess, and I don't know them, so this would be a guess. If I had to guess, it would be... I would guess Valentunas Siakam.
2: Oh, you're close. You're okay. close. It's uh, Valanchunas Ibaka. Really? Yeah. And then Siakam.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah. I think that settles the who's going to start at the fair <laughs> right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: In 2K we trust.
2: Do, do you play 2K?
1: I do. Yeah. I, I have, Me and uh, three of my buddies for the longest time. We haven't done this in years, but twice a year we used to get together. We had like Almost fantasy teams that we would do these massive tournaments. We'd spend take a whole day and just play uh, this like bracket style tournament with our with our self created teams. It was amazing. All through our twenties, we did this. So yeah, I'm a big two K guy.
2: Yeah uh I, I, i'm more on the fifa side of things i, I like the uh mm. it, it's the green grass um <laughs> it, there's actually a popular theory or at least a theory that the reason uh, the mls isn't as popular as some of the other uh, soccer leagues in, in in uh in europe is the is the grass because all the grass at, at on the mls field just looks like shit and the grass in the premier league just looks pristine and because so much of the screen is dominated by the soothing green color, people tend to watch it more and get into it more. Whereas the MLS, you're looking at like a like basically an NFL stadium, like that kind of grass.
1: I don't know if it's true, but that would make me so happy if that was true. That would be so obscure that it just tickles me in all sorts of ways. I find that hilarious.
2: Yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned um, Greg Monroe there a, a little bit. When that signing happened... Uh, were you, was was it surprised or were you happy to have him? Um, you know, I, I wrote a couple of days ago that, that that when that signing happened, I was like, man, we just signed a, a, a poorer version of JV.
1: Mm-hmm. I, that's why I was surprised because it didn't seem like he was bringing, I mean, at the time, I think we all sort of assumed that the team would go out there. If they're looking for a big man, they're going to look for rim protection um, and they're going to look for maybe a more nimble uh, defensive presence. So from that perspective, I was definitely surprised because, I don't think that uh, you're really filling a lot of holes, aside from maybe post-passing, with a guy like Monroe. But I also do buy the theory that when you can get a guy as talented as Craig Monroe for the minimum, you sort of do it and make it work. Now, there's a million reasons why that's an incredibly naive statement. But at the same time, when you are kind of going for a title and you're not so much just trying to build a team that's going to compete uh, in the regular season, you do have those games in the playoffs where these random veteran players win you games. And they and they shouldn't. But I mean, you remember when Dallas won their title and Peja Stoyakovic was a real factor in more than one game. And it's just those sort of weird things where you get to a certain place and raw talent will sometimes trump a project. Even if it's a project that that fills a couple of Necessary skill sets. I mean, again, it's. I guess one way to look at it is, why would you go after Monroe uh, versus bringing back someone like Bebe, who knows the team and you know has his has his troubles, but has a had have number of like fairly decent games for the Raptors. But I would imagine that that's a big factor as to why it's it's the way that you see all these kind of loaded teams in the off season grab those veterans at next to nothing deals, Um, and they will see minutes in the postseason. And I think that uh, Greg Monroe is going to fall into that camp. So yeah, I was pretty surprised when it happened, but I understand at least a strain of logic as to why
2: it happened. Yeah, It's going to be his fourth team in about 16 months. So uh, he has been uh, bounced around a little bit. Hey, if I had given you a trade, a straight up trade last season of Jakob Pertl and Danny Green, would you have done it?
1: That's a good question. <sighs> oh man, that's a really good question. Probably not, and I'd only, and I say that with extreme hesitancy, but I think the reason why would be because Green did not have his best season last year, uh, which we've since learned was because he was quite injured, Uh, but I think also because it felt like the team was pretty well stocked on the wings, and I don't know where he would have gotten minutes, whereas Pirtle had a very obvious and effective role with the team, so probably I would probably have said no
2: mm-hmm. but Danny Green is somebody that uh, certainly I am quite excited about and I think th- this his last season sucked narrative is a little overblown uh, it, it, like people think he he, he shot like 32 percent he was still. Thirty-six percent from three, uh, that's down from thirty-eight percent the year before. He averaged more points. Yeah, defensively he wasn't as good, and uh, you didn't see as many of those transition Danny Green threes that you're used to. But overall, I find right now he's slotted to start at at the two guard, and I think he brings that. Like we always talked about, Demar Derozan not shooting the three and not spreading the floor. Danny Green brings that in spades.
1: Well, and I think you know as as the circumstances change, I mean, I look, I. I Love Danny Green, and especially love Danny Green on a team that doesn't have DeMar DeRozan. Because now you can slot him into that starting shooting guard role where it's a perfect spot to put him because you don't have to cater to Danny Green in any way for him to be effective. So in this roster now, I think it's an amazing fit. And I think he's going to be a huge asset to what this team wants to do. And it's that it's funny how that kind of stuff works, where it really only takes... I mean, okay, moving DeRozan's not... A minor move, but it really only takes sort of um, one or two things to happen where a guy that I would more or less not trade for under one circumstance, I would absolutely trade for in another because the need becomes so prevalent and the opportunity becomes so open as a result of Demar moving. I, I mean, he definitely did not have a, a, a sucky year last year. I think it's, it speaks to his own, the quality of his play that anyone could look at last year and see it as as less than stellar. But, uh, but yeah, in terms of the way that this team is configured, I, I think... He's going to be great, and the guy he kind of reminds me of in that sense is someone like Anthony Parker. Just like no headaches, fits in with what the team wants to do, and there will 100% be games this season that they win on the back of his play.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, let's stick in the backcourt and, and talk about a couple of young guys who are set up nicely for quote unquote breakout years. Um, OG maybe. Perhaps too, uh, you know. Maybe it's a too early for him, but you could make a case that he is—he's uh, there right now, and there's some high expectations of him. Delon Wright is the other guy. Mm-hmm. Give me your view on how you see Delon Wright's season evol- evolving, and how you see him growing into the team, assuming that he stays uh, healthy. Like, what are your expectations of him, and do you think he's capable of uh, of meeting them, or, or what, what what might prevent him from uh, from meeting those?
1: So I think the expectations would probably be, I think he's going to play a lot at the two guard this year. I I think he's going to play a lot of uh, a backup shooting guard. Um, And so I think the expectation is really going to be to do a lot of the things that Danny Green does, to be frank. I think he started to see a little bit of the three-point shooting come in spurts last year. I think the expectation is going to be that he has to do that more consistently, especially from the corners. And playing the kind of defense that I think we've all known that he's capable of and, and is has long stretches where he plays spectacular defense. Um, but I think that if he doesn't meet those things, if, if it turns out that with, uh, with that role kind of shifting more to that spot as opposed to the, to, the, to the point guard or the playmaking side of things, I think that might be where you see his role being in danger. I also think, though, with someone like DeLon Wright, for me, is he would be the guy that I would be the most surprised to see on the roster at the end of the year. Because I don't know that the team is going to shell out to pay him. And I think that given the kinds of moves that they've made in the summer on the on the fringes, this is a team that does not sound like they are 100% confident in their current point guard rotation. And you know it's not because of the quality of the players. So I think that if the Raptors are going to be looking to make any kind of move uh, during the season to shore up any potential weak spots as they crop up during the season, I think DeLon Wright might be that guy. So. That's another reason he might not live up to his expectations is he might not actually be here.
2: Oh, man, that was uh, that was my next question, actually, was uh, who's going to survive, uh, Ibaka or CJ Miles? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if I had to pick uh, a guy who's, uh, especially if DeLon Wright is, uh, you made a good point about resigning him. Uh, but from a purely basketball perspective, I'd say, uh, you know, I agree. DeLon Wright's going to probably going to move over and play the two guard a lot. Uh, which means uh, CJ Miles' minutes will probably go down, yeah. and uh, he was the guy that I would I would expect to get traded uh, before the trade deadline. Um, but yeah, you kind of stole my thunder with the Delon Wright <laughs> thing. So, so you really think that the rappers are going to give up on Delon Wright yeah, because because I, 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 I always saw him as part of the nucleus of the future, and especially if you're entering a rebuild of any sort, even if you're not entering a rebuild, he seems to be a guy who is multifaceted, multi-tool guy who, uh, you know, who, who's a good defensive player, improving. He fits all the characteristics of a guy you want to keep. And if you do want to acquire assets, you, you trade from the likes of, you know, don't don't laugh at me now, like Norman Powell, CJ Miles, and, uh, and Ibaka.
1: Well, the thing I guess, I mean, it wouldn't be me so much looking at it like giving up on, on, on Wright. I, I'm a big Wright fan, but I think it's a case of one of two things is going to happen over the course of this. Well, okay, one of three things is going to happen over the course of this year. One is... They are absolutely kind of in contention, at least up to the trade deadline, and they have to make a call about whether or not they want to go out and get that last piece. And if it's going to be a piece that moves the needle in any way, I just don't think you're going to get it with Norm Powell or or Serge Ibaka. I think you actually have to attach something of, of value to the receiving team, and I think that would probably be DeLon Wright. At the other end of the spectrum, you have a scenario where the team is more or less not underperforming, but... They don't look like a team that's at the same level as your Houston's and your Boston's and, and whomever else might be sort of that next tier down below uh, Golden State. In which case, you have to start asking yourself, um, what do we want to do? You know, do, what what is the writing on the wall? Do we try to go out and juice this team with one more asset to get us up to that level? Do you say it? I don't think this is going to happen. Kawhi's not happy. We don't think he's going to stay. In which case, then yeah, I think maybe you kind of just leave it alone. You try to bring DeLon right back and you start to go the, the youth movement, because I agree that he's a great piece for that for that movement. I mean, the third scenario is that they're just like terrible and, and, and all bets are off. But, um, but those are the sort of scenarios for me. And it's just, if they need, put it this way, if they need to attach someone of value to move the needle for the team, I just think that that guy's going to wind up being right rather than Siakam or OG.
2: Mm-hmm. clearly you haven't seen Norman Powell's uh, post-summer league league videos which, which are which are amazing apparently I haven't I, seen them either
1: I actually saw one someone posted on Twitter like uh, the, the the compressed version of it and I was sort of watching it and it's that perfect example of I cannot imagine a video that is saying less to me about what's actually happening than this weird highlight video of guys in a gym sort of like famous guys but you know oh, they hit a, hit a three-pointer okay well we know he can hit a three anyway that was no. a perfect example for me why I don't watch those games <laughs>
2: So uh, let's let's work our way backwards when we talk about the East a little bit. Uh, give me your conference top seed and mm-hmm. your who comes out of the East, and explain both.
1: So, if I had to give a conference top seed, I would. I'm going to play it safe and say Boston. And the reason why I would choose Boston is because I think that going into the season, they have less to figure out than Toronto. And I think both teams have a lot to figure out because they're both trying to work in significant new players. I mean, in the Boston's case, they're returning new players, but given how much the young guys stepped up last year, I think uh, you really have to reconfigure what they're going to do there. So, but I still think that they have less to kind of work out than Toronto with the new coach, the new star, all of that sort of stuff. So I think that they probably are able to capture some games early that maybe Toronto has to drop as growing pains. But... If the Raptors are good, like, I mean, if Kawhi is healthy and, and buys in, then I actually like confidently say they come out of the East because I think that the way that the team is set up defensively and the way that they're set up to shoot, um, I think that they are a more balanced attack than what Boston's going to be able to throw at them in the postseason. So that would be my, uh, my sort of one, two punch for the Eastern conference
2: that's uh that's bold man that's <laughs> really bold for yeah uh so so that that, that essentially means we're going to win game seven in boston
1: sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll, say, we'll talk we'll chat in uh in late may and we'll see uh, how much egg i have on my face but yeah let's say today in september i feel comfortable saying that
2: yeah all right that's that's fine um i i actually had um, something similar but i, I well, I didn't have the Raptors coming out of the out of the East. Uh, I, I had Boston coming out of the East, but I could I could totally see why the Raptors might top the uh, top the season again. Uh, but it, it, it's so pointless talking about that because you just have no idea how the Raptors will shape up, how Kawhi will go. But pound for pound, you know. I say the Raptors are capable of winning like 55, 58 games again. And I think some of the growing pains that you're talking about, I think Boston still has to go through that as they find out, you know, where Hayward fits and all that. I think they still have some work to do on that end as well. Um, let, Let's switch to the West a little bit and uh, and talk about LeBron moving out of the East, which was, I think, I, I think we all breathed a sigh of relief. It was mm-hmm. like, is, that, is that how you felt?
1: Yeah, I, I think it was like, Exhaled to kind of turn into a hurricane as everybody in the city did it. But yeah, I would say that's a fair, fair assessment. It
2: it was almost getting. It's not like I was like, oh, thank God. It's more like, okay, something new in the east has died. Like it, it wasn't like, thank God he's gone. It was more like hey, maybe we'll see some different matchups in the playoffs. It's not going to be a foregone conclusion because now there's some actual balance in the NBA because the East was almost always spoken for before the season even started, and now it's not, and the West is definitely not spoken for. At least, at least well, who competes with Golden State is, is the question there. So let's dive into that question. Now, I don't know if you know this, but massive news about Carmelo Anthony signing with the Rockets so we can rule them out of contention. <laughs> uh who do, you see, who, who do you see challenging, uh, legitimately challenging Golden State?
1: I think the only team that going into the season that I could say has any shot at challenging them is probably Houston. And I actually don't know that they have a real shot at challenging them, which is such a deflating thing to say. Because as fun as it is to watch the way that Golden State plays, people like to kind of compare it to what it was like in the 90s with the Bulls. But the thing was, is the Bulls were challenged. You know, there was a number of series that they played in where you did not feel confident that they were going to come out of it until they came out of it. And so I would love to say that there was a team that I would feel confident saying is going to really push Golden State. I don't know that they exist. Houston's probably your best bet. Toronto and Boston are interesting options. And I only say that because we've never really seen them have to face a team like Golden State at that stage. So maybe it's something, but... The way that that team is constructed, it's and that the, the the sort of top line of that of the players on that team, I just I don't know what you throw at them to really slow them down. I think the only way they get slowed down is if they get injured. Uh,
2: you know, I wasn't joking about the Houston thing. Uh, like when they signed Carmelo, uh, I think in mid August at some point, uh, the first thing that came across my mind was like, "That's done. Like the Rockets are done." Uh, I don't know a team that Carmelo hasn't kind of ruined.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: like since he was with that Nuggets team way back when when they went to the Western Conference finals almost every team he's gone on there's been issues with him dominating the ball not allowing the rest of the team to reach his full potential I I really think he really is a bit of a stain of a player and wherever he goes some sort of negative stuff will follow
1: I don't disagree I mean this is a guy that it's always hard to watch players age ungracefully. And it's one of the things that I really have to admire about a guy like Vince Carter, who's actually been able to understand the arcs of his own career. I think Carmelo Anthony is one of these guys that just, as a player at that caliber, when you're, especially when you're younger, you have to believe so hard in yourself in order to get to the places that he's gotten to. But It becomes a blessing and a curse if you can't understand when it's not just a matter of confidence anymore. It's a matter of actual physical ability. And it's a matter of what the team needs. And I really, really worry because the expectations are so different in Houston than they were in Oklahoma City that it could really lead to a lot of ugliness, especially when you're going up against a guy in the locker room like Chris Paul who I don't actually think would even be as patient as Russell Westbrook was last year with the way that Carmelo plays the game.
2: Uh, and patience and Russell Westbrook uh, <laughs> you know, don't really uh, go together. right? What, what, what do you think of the, of the Thunder?
1: The Thunder to me are just one of those teams that... This sounds so mean. It's one of those teams that's basically irrelevant, right? Like, they're not good enough to compete at that level in the West. They're not stocked up with, with young players that makes you excited about what their future might look like. Like They're not like Utah was a couple of years ago. They're just a team, a team that will make the playoffs, a team that, you know, might win a round in the playoffs. A guy like Russell Westbrook is fascinating to watch, but it's just sort of sad with the way the economics of the NBA work right now because you put together a team like Oklahoma City and that's it. It's the same thing that happened to the Clippers, you kind of get to a stage where your salaries land at a certain spot which hard caps you and all the rest of it in the luxury tax and you're just staring at all they can do and so you just sort of say like well you know they're a playoff spot you know they because they're in that means that it's going to be harder for someone else to get in but other than that i don't really know how excited you get about them i don't i mean do you, are you excited about oklahoma city
2: I like Russell Westbrook as a player, but but they do remind me of the uh, old, uh, you know, mid-90s, 2000s, uh, or even more recent incarnations of the Hawks. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, like they're going to make the playoffs. They're going to maybe even get the fifth or sixth seed, maybe even the fourth. But you just know they're not going anywhere. It's kind of what the Raptors used to be with Chris Bosh.
1: Yeah, for sure. They're, they're kind of like empty calories in the playoffs.
2: Yeah. Uh, but the Westbrook whisperer no yeah. cheeks uh, who they got to uh, to finally teach Westbrook how to make the most of himself and his teammates uh, what do you think of these attempts of uh, by uh, by NBA teams to get you know veterans who who give younger guys like Westbrook an ear does that work like are there any instances where at that stage of his, uh, of, a, of a player's career somebody has come in and like actually whispered something in his ear and next thing you know they've they've evolved into like a like a greater heights.
1: No. And I, and I even think that it's somewhat patronizing that yeah. teams sort of <laughs> even think to do that. Like, Russell Westbrook is like a grown player who does something as well as almost any human can do a thing, you know, and he will seek out the kind of guidance that he needs to get himself to that place. The, the notion that Mo Cheeks, you know, great player, Hall of Famer, all the rest of it, is going to come in and say the magic words that just transform Russell Westbrook as a player... It's absurd, and if I'm Russell Westbrook, I'm actually probably insulted at the insinuation rather than, you know, like sitting here with bated breath waiting to hear these words of wisdom. I mean, the closest thing I can even come up with to to the scenario you described is when Eugeri and Casey sat Lowry down a couple years ago. But that was not a case of them bringing in the Lowry whisperer. And in fact, it was Chauncey Billups of his own volition reaching out to Lowry over that summer and also kind of putting a bug in his ear. You know, these guys in the NBA look out for each other. You know, it's it, this is not a case of these players just sort of wall themselves off when there aren't coaches and teammates around. Like these are guys that are constantly around each other. They compare their careers with each other. They compare their careers with the people that came before them. They ask for advice. They, I mean, they are they're normal people, and so the idea that you need these like Svengali figures to come in and fix their brain is I don't know. It, it bothers me so much just because I find it it's such a it's it's such a reduction of what these guys do to get themselves to where they are.
2: Yeah, and you're also comparing the guy to a horse.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, like he's one of the probably one of the greatest players to ever play basketball. I have, no, I can't, I can't even get it. It's so it drives me so crazy. Uh,
2: so, so you're not a big believer of uh, <laughs> of um, uh, Jamal McGlure coming in and teaching Jv post moves.
1: Oh, my God.
2: I, I, I think that's different, though, because I think there you're, you're trying to teach a physical skill to another player, and I think that might be possible. Well, and uh, I,
1: I will actually believe that more. Having a coach come in to teach a skill set over the coach of course of a season, mm-hmm. I believe in that more than going down to Houston for seven days and learning from Hakeem Olajuwon, who, no disrespect to Hakeem Olajuwon, mm-hmm. but I don't know what you're going to really transfer. I mean, what are you going to learn from him really in seven days, you more or less couldn't learn from watching him and asking another coach to kind of walk you through those moves. Like you need to be doing this over the course of several months to be able to turn something that is a awkward sort of footwork skill set for you when you're first learning it into something that will actually transform your career. I mean, I think Hakeem has got the best racket going right now, charging guys you know 100k a pop to come down for a couple of days so we can show them what the dream shake looks like.
2: Yeah, and by the time you figured out what he's saying, the seven days are over.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, I I do think the um, Dave Hopla uh, world tour is worth the money. Because apparently when he comes in, he hits like 100 straight jumpers, and he's got everybody's attention. And then you're going to listen to the guy uh, on how to shoot.
1: Well, and there's also a difference between doing something as a player and teaching it. You know, these are two completely different skill sets. And the notion that because a guy was able to execute at a really high level or even able to execute at a really high level and inspire his teammates does not mean that he's going to be able to teach relative strangers. It's it's, it's a very, very, very different skill set. And I think it's one of the things that a lot of ex-players who want to become coaches who don't really see that career take off fail to realize is that just because you were really good at doing something doesn't mean you're going to be really good at teaching it.
2: Mm-hmm. All right, man, I think we're uh, we're hitting the hour mark of this podcast, so let's uh, let's uh, r- wrap things up a little bit. Um, so as we enter another season of the Raptors, um, by the way, I just want to comment on this. This is kind of important, uh, is that uh, we changed the name of the ACC from the ACC to the Scotiabank arena. Yeah. So we went from three syllables to seven (laughs) and that's that's not good i i predict uh what's going to happen here is the skydome rogers center thing where this thing will be known as the acc for years to come
1: i mean it'll take it'll take me forever to just get out of reflexively calling it the acc so i'm fine with that
2: Mm -hmm. because i don't think i'm going to say hey you're going to the scotia bank arena tonight (laughs) on principle i hope you don't say that (laughs) so let's end uh on um on a media note uh, and, and talk about Tim's favorite NBA analysts. Oh, okay, yeah. So over the years, we've seen a you know transition from you know the NBA on NBC, which was very romantic with Hannah Storm and all that, and then we went into the um, uh, I guess the ESPN era, the ABC era, and then it was a Charles Barkley TNT era. And I feel the millennials don't listen to TNT anymore. I just get that sense. I have no idea, but it, it feels like a lot of the uh, like Reddit and guys there kind of discount what the TNT crew have to say now. And they're more of the uh, Royce young uh, watch type of, um, you know, analytical reporting type deal. Where do you go other than Raptors Republic, of course, for your source of uh, NBA analysis? Like what's your go-to destinations?
1: Um, I think nowadays, Zach Lowe is definitely a big one. It's kind of an easy, cheap answer because he's so promoted on ESPN, but he was that first guy that I found was able to actually combine the analytical perspective with the narrative perspective. I think for the longest time, you had these very, very staunch narrative guys who refused to delve into the analytical debate. And you had analytics guys who were so uh, so wrapped up in, in, in creating stories that were just numbers that I found it very refreshing to have somebody who knew how to contextualize it. It's a bit of insider baseball, even that kind of thing too, because it's also very hard to do what he does. But um, so that's an easy one um, on the writing side. Uh, I like what Kevin Pelton does. Having said that, he is still a bit analytical for me. Um, but uh, on the, I actually found it interesting, the idea of the TV side too, because I do agree that I think that it seems like there's just a, in general a much stronger appetite for... The X's and O's from analysts now As opposed to the to the theatrics And I think that's one of the reasons Maybe why the TNT thing Has kind of lost a bit of luster For certain people uh, Which is why I kind of love um, That Hubie Brown is still around Because he's somebody That's always really prioritized Teaching the, uh, the game to people When they're watching um, I really enjoy Doris Burke For that reason I actually also quite like This is not everybody's cup of tea I actually quite like Chris Weber. For a similar reason like that too. I don't think he's teaching the X's and O's, but I think he's one of the best former players at describing what it is like to play in the scenarios that he's watching. Uh, which is a, which is an angle that I always find fascinating, just because it's the one that's the hardest to actually represent. Like I can I can look up the numbers myself, but actually getting that sort of understanding of the relational aspect of basketball, I find interesting. So. Um, yeah, I don't, you know what it's it's one of those sort of questions where too I'm sure that as soon as, as soon as we end the call, I'm going to think of a hundred people that uh, I, no. I follow. but uh, but those are sort of the easy ones. I end up just almost reflexively like just uh, insta papering all of the articles as they come up on Twitter. and so I kind of like shamefully don't even always read the byline uh, for half of the stuff that I read.
2: do you do you listen to the radio at all?
1: No, almost never.
2: D- did you ever listen to the radio?
1: I did not And I think it's probably because I actually I never like I've never needed to drive to get to anywhere. So I feel like that for our age group, like that, that would have been the only place where I would have been really listening to the radio. So no, Mm -hmm. why is there somebody for for you? Are you like a a radio guy?
2: No, no. Well, back in the day, yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. I used to listen to the radio a lot and uh, because the rappers were rarely covered. You know, at all now. Since podcasts came along and all that, forget about it. I'm talking about like in the '90s, early 2000s, when you know podcasts weren't there and the media content wasn't there. Yeah, radio radio was uh, you know a big part of the Raptors following experience. And I remember listening to the Fan 590 and being hugely disappointed all the time, <laughs> except except at at night when Storman Norman Rumack used to come on. Mm. And what I loved about Norm it's not that he knew basketball, it's just that he knew that he didn't know basketball. Yeah. And he used to approach the commentary that way, and he used to genuinely ask questions of people that he himself had no idea about. So it was almost, like, it was nice to watch this really curious guy trying to probe into people while trying to entertain, but also while trying to learn himself. Uh, So that was my, you know experience with radio late at night storm room and room i think he started at 11 p.m and went on to like 2 a.m and that's when that's when he had a couple of couple of raptor guys on
1: it's interesting too because i find that that sort of thing so perfectly emulates what it was like for so many raptors fans in those first 10 years where there was a sort of bravado from raptors fans like i, I know what the nba i know what's going on and you talk to them for five minutes and you've got no clue what's going on so i always sort of appreciated the people that would sort of whether it was a role or whether it was genuine would always kind of play the role of the fool and be willing to ask stupid questions because I actually think that that was so important for the education of a lot of people in Toronto basketball fandom because that basic knowledge just wasn't in place.
2: Yeah well I think I think it's uh time to wrap it up Tim man thanks for uh thanks for coming on uh the season's about to start we'll do uh many more of these as we go along as the Raptors go on and win the East and then come out of the finals. (laughs) Yeah exactly. <laughs> no doubt about it. Hey man, I- I'm looking forward to you know the Boston-Toronto matchups again. I think those were one of the best games last season, and and, and they look to be some great games this year too. Phillies in the mix. So the Eastern con, we'll, we'll do a separate Eastern Conference uh, preview podcast on Rappers Republic. But you know, there's there's some juicy, juicy matchups in the East that uh, that we're looking looking forward to. And you know what? There's this like mystery, this unknown, this open question on that there's an an actual real chance that the Raptors might come out of the East, which, let's be fair, wasn't there for the last few years.
1: Yeah, no, I'm very excited for the season to start. It's time. I'm ready to go. All
2: right, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
0: Just in time for the holidays, fill your home and your season for less at HomeDepot.com with up to 40% off a wide assortment of select bedding and bath linens. Update your bed or bath online right from the comfort of your own cozy couch. Even get free delivery and flexible returns. How's that for holiday cheer? Up to 40% off. Holiday home decor improved from HomeDepot.com. How doers get more done. Online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit HomeDepot.com for more information.